Our Father and our God, we have gathered here this morning to celebrate grace. Grace, sovereign, full and free. Grace that has found out a sinner like me. Grace that has brought us from a posture of spiritual death and has wooed us and drawn us irresistibly into the household of faith. And we stand today planted, not on sand, but on the rock, the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ who lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died so that sinners such as I might find forgiveness and restoration, reconciliation with the God who had been offended by my sin. We have come to celebrate what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. There was a day, O oh God, when our eyes were smeared with sin, and through the efficacy of the Holy Spirit's work, our eyes have been opened to see the, the horror of our sin and the beauty of the Savior. And we have been drawn. We have been drawn into this household of faith, and here we stand. We are trophies of grace. Grace that we'll perhaps never fully understand, but grace from which we drink deeply today and long to drink fresher and newer drafts of your amazing grace. Father, it is our joy to gather. It is our delight to worship. And we pray that you will find delight in us as worshipers. Oh God, might when we finish here in this hour, there might be a, a new direction in our souls, a, a new conviction, a new consecration. We don't want to waste an hour, oh God. Catch us up. And bring us into the throne room that we might gaze upon your loveliness. Our Father, it has been a, a very um, hard week for so many people who name the name of Christ. Oh God, I pray that you will comfort them. I pray, oh God, for the body global. I pray that you would, that you would grant repentance to the Episcopalian Church. That they might see once again the, the great need to fix all of their attention upon your truth, your word, and the proclamation of it. Oh God, I pray for your people here. People who wonder whether or not they can lean their full weight on the truth and veracity of your word. Convince them today, O oh Holy Spirit, that the only hope that any of us have is the truths that are contained in that book. Thank you, O oh God. We believe it not because we're smarter, but because you by the Holy Spirit have granted us that, that eye to see what is genuinely true. Now, Father, we come to build our lives on it. Father, accept our gifts. They are small compared to what's left in the cupboard, O oh God. They're small. But use every dime for one reason only, to bring about the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I want to remind you that we are in the midst of uh, a five-week-long look at a sentence that is taken out of one verse in Acts chapter 14. 
It's Acts 14, verse 22. It's just one sentence out of Acts 14, 22, uh, which states, and we must through many tribulation enter the kingdom of God. That's what we're doing for the month of August, still taking a look at that statement on the, on the part of the Apostle Paul. He does not say, uh, listen, gang, it's inevitable, so buck up. He, uh, he says it is a necessity. It's necessary, so cheer up. That's what we're looking at for, um, for the next four weeks. I want you to know that I've tried. I really tried, um, and I, to this point, have failed. Uh, I have tried on a couple of different, different occasions in the past to figure out how to understand Shakespeare. Because very intelligent pastors, like me, uh, are supposed to quote uh, Shakespeare from time to time. Uh, that's just a part of the, the whole image. But the last time I tried really came at the, um, the urging of Steve Brown, who called Shakespeare a body playwright. Well, the first thing I had to do is look up the word body, and then uh, once I figured out what that meant, then I started trying to figure out what Shakespeare was all over again, and failed all over again. Uh, so I'm still not an expert in Shakespeare, but I am going to quote him. There are a couple of sentences here and there that I do understand, and the one that I'm about to quote I do understand, and I hope you will. Uh, it comes from Macbeth, and Shakespeare in Macbeth says this, each new morn... New widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. Let me do it again. Each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. Now, I understand that. I don't like it, but I understand it. We don't want to believe a statement like that. Um, but I, I'm afraid, ladies and gentlemen, that whether we want to believe it or not, it is true. It is life. Uh, every morning, there are dozens of new lives that are ruined. And many more widows howl and orphans cry. Thousands more each day greet the morning with fresh tears. And if you, up to this point, have been living a fairly charmed life, fairly uncomplicated, fairly comfortable, then I want you to know that one of those mornings, the cry will come from you, if it hasn't already. And maybe it will be more than one morning. Life will come after you, ladies and gentlemen. Life will see to it that you will have as much pain as you can possibly bear. Now, aren't you glad you came to Gracie Van this morning? <laughs> uh, thank you, Dr. Young, for those inspiring comments. Uh, to be told that um, that uh, that is life and it is filled with so much pain um, is not exactly what I would call a, a comforting piece of truth. Actually, I didn't need to tell you that. You already knew it long before you came in here this morning. My concern is not uh, that how to define life. My concern is how to uh, be uh, more than a conqueror in the midst of them so that we will master them and not be mastered by them. Tribulation, I'm, I'm referring to. I want to, by this little five-week series, help us conquer and not be conquered. 
That's what this is all about. I, I made a mistake several years ago. Um, I haven't made one since, but um, several years ago, I made a mistake by announcing that I was going to teach a Bible study on the book of Daniel to a group of singles, and I made that announcement before I had studied the book through its entirety. Have you ever done that? Have you ever studied the book of Daniel? Well, I was drawn to it because of the same reasons that you're drawn to it. My mistake was that uh, I was going to take on a book that contained some stuff that I didn't know was in there. Uh, If you don't know this, ladies and gentlemen, the book of Daniel is divided up in basically two halves. You've got the first six chapters that contain all those stories that we love. And then the last six chapters contain some visions. And, oh, are they some visions. There's some real eschatological stuff in there. Eschatology, of course, is a study of last things. But it's some visions in there. And I'm telling you, it's tough sledding. It isn't easy. And, and I'm, I'm uh, afraid that I produced more confusion than I did understanding. But I learned my lesson. And that is uh, stick with the first six chapters and you got a chance. If you wade back into the last six chapters, you're way over your head, sonny boy, and uh, really don't know what you're talking about. So I, um, for your benefit, I have uh, chosen some statements out of the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. Those which um, are the famous stories of Daniel that you already know well, and I think I fairly, I mean, I understand them much better than I understand the last uh, six chapters, and the stories contained there. You learned these stories in Sunday school. The stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I love to say that. And uh, the story uh, in, the, in the fire furnace. And then Daniel in the lion's den. You remember those stories. So you cut your Sunday school teeth on those stories. Well, what I want to do today is take a fresh look at those stories. Um, and I'm going to avoid... Some of the details of those stories, because what I want to give you is something that's more of a panorama. I want, to, I want you to be able to step back and not get lost in the, in the, in the clutter um, and, and take a look from, from a different perspective, I hope, and uh, to learn a different set of lessons, I hope. So, if you've got your Bibles, open them with me to chapter 3. I'm not going to read um, both of these stories. What I'm going to do is try to outline them as we kind of walk through these two stories. The first story, of course, is the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It starts in uh, verse 8 of chapter 3. And you might remember that Nebuchadnezzar had uh, established a rule in his kingdom. He had set up a gold image. And every time that all these trumpets and lyres and everything played, everybody in the kingdom was to bow down to the gold image and worship it. Basically, it was an image of Nebuchadnezzar. And, of course, there were three people in the, uh, the kingdom who wouldn't do that. Their, their, uh, their Babylonian names, this wasn't, they, these weren't their Jewish names, but their Babylonian names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And um, as a result of their unwillingness to bow down to the gold image, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is told, these three men are arrested and brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and he is furious. And he says, I'm going to give you one more chance. That's in verse 15. I'm going to give you guys one more chance. And if you'll bow down, oh, you know, okay. But if not, you're going into the fiery furnace. And then you get that, that famous reply in verses 16, 17, and 18 from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, concerning their unwillingness to um, uh, accede to Nebuchadnezzar's request. 
they say something like, uh, I'm sorry, we'll never worship your idols. Uh, God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, it doesn't matter. We're not serving your idols, so just forget it. And so that makes Nebuchadnezzar even more furious. And so he tells his people to heat up the furnace uh, even hotter than it's been heated up before and then throw those guys in there. And we're told in verse 23... Um, verse 22, that the men who escorted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the fiery furnace, because it was exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, these three men, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, are thrown into the fiery furnace. That's the story. Normally, ladies and gentlemen, I, I think this is fairly true, uh, but normally... When this text is handled, verses 16, 17, and 18 are the focus of one's handling. And rightly so. It's a, it's a, stirring, a stirring statement on their part. And it's, and it's rich with truth. I want to place your eyes someplace else. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. And, um, I mean, it's really hot in there. <laughs> so much so that even the guys who threw them in got consumed. And... Um, in verse 24, we're told that King Nebuchadnezzar is somehow watching this from some vantage point. And he says in verse 24, wait a minute, wait just a second, folks. We threw three people in there, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, King, we threw three in there. But who's the fourth? Because, verse 25... I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And then, as you know, King Nebuchadnezzar cries out. He says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come on out! They, they come out, and um, uh, they kind of examine them in the middle of verse 27. Uh, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. And then Nebuchadnezzar breaks out in this saying in verse 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel. Now, go to chapter 6 with me. This is the story about Daniel. Now, Daniel, um, there's a different king. It's now uh, after the handwriting on the wall. Remember that story? Well, a new king is in town. He's a Median Persian king, and his name is Darius. And um, there are some people who are very envious of Daniel and want to see him um, eliminated. And so they go to the king and they say, here's the deal. Here's, here's what we ought to do. They cook up a scheme, a plot to uh, get Daniel, because we're told, very interestingly, in verse 5, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Wouldn't that be a wonderful statement to be made about us? You know, we've looked at him morally, but there's not a flaw in him. <laughs> so we're going to have to cook up something really unique for this guy. So they cook up this scheme. The scheme is this. Uh, Darius, how about this? Uh, everybody needs to worship you and you only for the next 30 days. And anybody who doesn't worship you for the next 30 days, we need to throw into the lions. Darius says, good idea. Let's do that. So he signs it into law, the, the law of the Medians and the Persians. And, of course, uh, they go out and they find Daniel. And then guess what he's doing? He's praying to someone else other than Darius. And so they arrest uh, Daniel, take him over to Darius's house, and Darius is very, very grieved, we're told, uh, because he kind of liked Daniel, and uh, he's very, it's very, uh, he, feels, he sees himself having been caught in a trap, but he can't get out of it, because as you know, the law of the Medes and the Persians, you can't ever violate it, you can't take it back. And so Daniel is thrown to the lions. And then in verse uh, 18, we're told that uh, Darius couldn't sleep. 
He was fasting all night, couldn't, didn't sleep very well. And, and in verse 19, we're told early in the morning, very early in the morning, he pops out of bed. He runs down to the lion's den just with the outside chance that maybe Daniel has done something to avoid uh, getting eaten up by the lions. And so he, he shouts into the lion's den, oh, Daniel, this is in verse uh, 20, verse 20. Are you still in there? Uh, are you alive? And to his delight and surprise, there is a reply from the inside of the den, and it's Daniel's. And Daniel says in verse 22, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me. Now, gang, let's for a moment put aside all the details. And uh, just for the moment... I want you to see that this much is fairly obvious. This is not rocket science, ladies and gentlemen. Point number one, these are God's people. Number two, they are in some pretty desperate predicaments. Would you not agree? Now, from this point, ladies and gentlemen, we can go in a couple of different directions. I can take this in a couple of different directions. Um, What we could do is that we could spend some time... um, um, talking about the details of uh, all that went on with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and, and that, great, that great reply on their parts in verses 16, 17, and 18. And we could try to glean some, some uh, advice and counsel for us when we're going through times where the fires are rather hot, whether that be marital or familial or professional or physical, whatever, financial. And we could probably profit greatly from learning something from how Daniel faced a, a, a pack of lions. By the way, in my, in my research, this is kind of an aside, I found out that a pack of lions is not called a pack of lions. Did you know that? A pack of lions is called a pride of lions. Did you know that? When you're referring to a group of lions, it's a pride of lions. The king of the jungle, he moves about in prides. Most people who think they're kings do move around in prides. But uh, a pack of lions is a pride of lions. Anyway, well, when, uh, when the lions seem to outnumber you, you might learn some wonderful lessons uh, from Daniel and how he faced his particular situation. But I would like to take this in another direction. Forget us for a second. In fact, forget us for a lot of seconds. Because it's not about us. And that's my point. In both of these stories, ladies and gentlemen, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, the players in those two stories take a back seat. They are downsized, and the spotlight is placed on the mystery guest. In, in the story of chapter 3 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's that fourth Guy, number four mystery guest that's walking around. Didn't we just throw three in there? Where did number four come from? Well, the angel of God came. The angel of God came and he, and he appears to be as if one of the sons of God. And isn't it interesting that we flip over three chapters to a later experience on the part of a child of God that ain't real pretty. And the angel... The angel goes from a furnace to a lion's den. And in the story of Shadrach and Meshach, Abednego, all of the 
details kind of get swallowed up in the appearance of this number four. Everything pivots around the arrival of this, of this mystery guest. Because the fire is almost forgotten as all of our attention is fixed. Not so much on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Our attention is fixed on this, who is this number four? How did they pull this off? Through wise counsel? No, no, ladies and gentlemen. It was the presence of number four. How did Daniel do this? Because he's more righteous than the rest of us? He is that. But that's not how he pulled it off, ladies and gentlemen. Those lion's mouths got closed, not because Daniel was strong and smart and spiritual and dedicated and consecrated and he died. The lion's mouths got closed because the angel of the Lord showed up. And the whole focus of those two stories shifts from what these people of God are going through. And it shifts onto this grand and glorious provision that God has made in the midst of their difficulty. I want to say, ladies and gentlemen, that the book of Daniel, the entire book, is not about Daniel. It's about Daniel's God. The story is not about Daniel. It's about, it's about Daniel's God. It's not about Daniel. The story about Jimmy Young, ladies and gentlemen, is not about Jimmy Young. It's about Jimmy Young's God. It's not about him. And it's not about you either. If you want to know why you are placed on this planet, my brother and sister in Christ, you must begin with God. You were made by God. You were made by God for God. You exist only because God wills that you exist. You were made for His pleasure, not vice versa. I exist for Him. He doesn't exist for me. It is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are the sheep of His pasture. Okay, Dr. Young. Uh, how's that supposed to help me when I'm staring down a lion gullet? What does that have to do with anything? It has everything to do with it. Because here, ladies and gentlemen, is the principle that I want you to leave with today. Your focus will determine not only your feelings, but your performance. Your focus will determine not only your feelings, but your performance. You know, one of the Star Wars movies, um, oh gosh, I forget the name of it now. One of the Star Wars movies, the, the Jedi warrior is, is speaking to this young kid and he says, what you're focused on becomes your reality. Well, that's partially true, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, a lot of it is true. I mean, taken in one way, it's false. But what you focus on, ladies and gentlemen, is going to determine... Not only your feelings in the midst of difficulty, it's going to determine your performance. And normally, is it not true of us? Is it not true of us that in the midst of the fire, what we're determined, what we're focused on is how to get out of it? How to lessen our pain? How to bring this to a halt? How much longer is this going to last? Is, is that not our focus? 
And I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, our whole emotional response to pain, our whole performance is skewed because our focus is wrong. It is not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. These two stories in the book of Daniel ask us to take our eyes off of what's happening to me and to fix our eyes on the God who promised to be in the fire with us. Corey Tinboom, a name familiar to most of you, I think, Corey Tinboom put it like this. She said, If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within you, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you will be at rest. And I want to remind you that she was staring at a lion by the name of Hitler who had a mighty big bite. Gang, it's when we think much of Christ that we think less of our difficulty, less of our trial. You know, there is a statement by the Apostle Paul that, that I think this is what he was up to when he makes this statement in, in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. He says, and he died for us, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. He died for us so that we would not live for ourselves. Gang, this story that is being written about us is not about us. You know, if, if, this is, if this is unclear, let me, do my, let me make my best shot at making it as clear as I can make it. It's the familiar story of Peter walking on the water, ladies and gentlemen. In, in a lot of instances, we're more like Peter than anything else. We want to follow Jesus Christ. And we look at him and we say, bid me come to you. And so he says, all right, come on. And off we go. And then in the midst of travel, the waves get bigger and the wind blows harder. And all of a sudden, everything gets changed. And it's no wonder we sink. Because we are consumed with our own safety. We are consumed with our own pain. We are consumed with our own story. And I'm here to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, it's not about us. Our lives are not about ourselves, ladies and gentlemen. We have a bit part in an enormous play. We're not soloists, but we sing in a choir. We are, um, we have a small part, ladies and gentlemen, in the unfolding of the history of Jesus Christ and all of his glory. And about 2,000 years ago, the author of the story wrote himself into the plot. And he's the star of the show. And my chances of of conquering are dramatically improved if my focus is on him and off me. That's my, that's my message to you, my brother and sister in Christ. Our chances of, of conquering are vastly improved if we get our eyes off of our pain and onto him. In the midst of all these promises that he will walk through the fire with us, etc., etc., ladies and gentlemen, I am suggesting that our focus needs to be on who he is and what he's up to. In the midst of my tribulation, how is Jesus Christ going to be seen? Gang, i got to tell you this story, and we're, we're running rather late. I, you know, I try to do sermons on the day of the Lord's Supper that are briefer. 
and we're not brief. But I've got to tell you this story, and then we'll quit. Um, when I was in Hungary, I, one of the men that I really grew to love over there is a guy by the name of Bob Snyder. Bob Snyder is an emergency room doctor in Philadelphia. He started a ministry in Budapest, Hungary, and he ministers to doctors uh, uh, in, in uh, Budapest. And um, we spent several coffees and lunches and dinners together. And on one of those occasions, he told me a story about a man who was his mentor. The man was in his 80s. He was a Hungarian. And um, he was, his hands were very gnarled because they had been, the bones in his hands had been broken by the butt of a communist gun. This man, and I forget his name, but I think his name was Laszlo. We're going to call him Laszlo anyway. Well, Laszlo um, had been rehabilitated three times for his faith. That means he was sent to prison three times because he was a Christian. But this man had become a mentor to Bob Snyder. Well, Bob Snyder had found some new office space headquarters for his ministry there in Budapest. And he was going to uh, celebrate with a grand opening on a particular day. Now, I'm going to make up dates. The dates aren't important. But the dates, um, he, let's imagine that his, his grand opening was on the 17th of August at 10.30 a.m. Well, at 10.30 a.m. on the 10th day of August, Laszlo shows up. One week early. Knock on the door. Bob opens the door and there's Laszlo. Laszlo steps in and, and Bob says, Laszlo, what are you doing here? And he said, it's for the grand opening. And he said, Bob said, my dear brother, you're a week early. It's, it's next week. It's a week from today. And Bob said, when he heard that, he stood and he began to look around the room. He did that for about three minutes, and finally Bob said, Laszlo, what are you looking for? And Laszlo said, where is God? Because I know I didn't come here by accident. Jimmy, I'm so miserable in my job. My friend. Where is God? What is he up to? What is he teaching you? How would he use you? Oh, my marriage. I'm so miserable in my marriage. Where is God? It's not an accident, ladies and gentlemen. What's he up to? What's he doing? How will Christ be seen? How will he use you? Where is he? He's there. But Jimmy, I'm just plain downright miserable. You know what? Maybe it might be. That you don't know this God of ours at all. Maybe the misery that you're experiencing at this very moment is designed to woo you and draw you to the Savior. But I can promise you this. He's there. Because this whole thing is not about you. Our Father, I pray that you will, by the Holy Ghost of God, shift us, move us, change us. Might the focus be off of our pain and fixed on the one who accompanied Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into a fiery furnace. On the one who has promised to walk through fires and high waters with us. The one who has never made a promise that he's broken yet. And I pray, O oh God, that we might become skilled 
at seeing you in every circumstance. Now, will God meet us at this table? We come to partake of Jesus Christ. We come to drink His blood and eat His flesh all over again. Thank you for the privilege. We pray in Jesus' name.